Right, uh, welcome everyone uh, to the London School of Economics and the Middle East Centre and the Kuwait program. I think we're uh, triply lucky today. Firstly, we come uh, to join in a celebration and a launch of Courtney Freer's excellent new book, Rentier Islam. And I think it speaks to Courtney's uh, growing reputation in the field that we have two august discussants to run through the book with you. But firstly, let me say a little bit about Courtney. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have worked with her since 2015 when we appointed her to become a research officer at the Kuwait program at the Middle East Center. Uh, in, a bit, in a short period of time, she will have quite rightly been elevated to a research fellow here. Uh, she, uh, before she was here, she did her, her DPhil, what normal people call a PhD, at the University of Oxford, and before that uh, worked in Doha. She has a BA from Princeton, which as you know is almost as good as LSC, <laughs> uh, an MA from George Washington, and a PhD is from St. Anthony's University of Oxford. Uh, she's been a great colleague, and apart from this book, has published in the International Journal of Middle East Studies and the journal Middle East Studies, and our article in the Middle East Studies was so good that she was immediately asked to join the editorial board, uh, which I think is, is no mean feat. Now this, I think, is, is simply a superb book, and it's a superb book for a number of reasons. I think firstly, and rather imaginatively, it uses the Muslim Brotherhood, the Ikhwan, to undermine rather cliched and outdated notions of rentier politics, of stable, rather dull politics, and then it goes through the Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood's uh, huge influence in the Gulf, uh, why they first came, how they were integrated into certainly the education system of the Gulf states and why they've been slowly uh, moved out of that. I think as we know the Muslim Brotherhood uh, today is an incredibly incendiary topic and I think Courtney has treated that topic with the keen and balanced eye of a social scientist. Now we're triply lucky because uh, we've got two other speakers to discuss the book, to celebrate it, or damn it, it's up to them, but I'll take good betting that they do the first and not the second. Firstly, Sir John Jenkins, who uh, happens to be on the, uh, the uh, board member of the management committee of the Middle East Centre, so we all have to be nice to him, but more importantly than that, I first got to know him when he was ambas British ambassador to Iraq, and he followed that position as British ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and then very recently was a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute, and he is currently a senior fellow at the Policy Exchange in London. If you go on their website, you'll see him give the first uh, Elikadori Memorial Lecture there, which I think is fascinating reading. Secondly, Stefan Lacroix, another friend of the Middle East Centre and the London School of Economics, who happens to be teaching at Sciences Po, which again, like Princeton, is almost as good <laughs> as LSE, but not quite, and is an expert in this field, has published uh, Awakening Islam, the Politics of Religious Dissent in contemporary Saudi Arabia. Courtney will speak eloquently for 20 minutes, and then our discussants will have 10 minutes each. Stefan will go first, and uh, Sir John will go second. And then this is a plebiscite, an opinion poll. So if you think that the talks were excellent, which I'm sure they will be, at the bargain basement price of merely, <laughs> merely 30 pounds, you can not only buy the book outside, that, but also Courtney will sign it for you. And then if you've bought the book, uh, you can get a free glass of wine as well, which will reduce the cost of the book overall and we'll celebrate once again the topic. 
So without further ado, will you join me in welcoming Courtney Freer. Thank you, Toby. Thanks for the, the hard sell on the book. I appreciate it. Um, it's great to be here, and I need to thank uh, the Middle East Center and the Kuwait program here at LSE for hosting me throughout the time I was writing this book, and particularly when I was very unpleasant whilst writing my own index, which I would discourage each and every one of you from doing. So as Toby mentioned, the book addresses a topic that I think is discussed a lot more than it's actually understood in a scholarly way. Um, it uses the study of the Muslim Brotherhood to take on some of the major shortcomings of the primary theoretical framework used in Gulf studies, which is, of course, rentier state theory. Particularly, the idea that the arrangement of no taxation, no representation, is universally and rather self-consciously accepted by politically quiescent citizens who very voluntarily um, exchange political voice for material benefits. So I wanted to show through the book that uh, despite material benefits, uh, ideas and ideology do have power in the Gulf. Um, and in a, in a sense, then, I wanted to de-exceptionalize the Gulf by demonstrating that the same Islamist movements that have power elsewhere in the Middle East also resonate within Gulf states, despite hydrocarbon wealth. I wanted to make the related point that the social and the political are very much linked inside of the Gulf states I looked at, especially in states without parliamentary elections. The link between the social and political, in my estimation, has led some policy, uh, policymakers and analysts to presume incorrectly that the Gulf lacks political life, when in fact that political life may simply be less institutionalized than we, we expect. Uh, and in this kind of environment where the social and political are quite fluid, the Muslim Brotherhood as a social movement, often which has both a social arm and a political arm, um, is able, is uniquely placed to make inroads. In terms of what's actually covered in the book, I look at what I call the super rentier states of Kuwait, Qatar, and the UAE. Those states that, according to rentier state theory, would be least likely to house independent movements of any type due to the fact that they give the greatest uh, kind of benefit packages to their citizens, including free healthcare, education, public sector jobs. This is partly because the number of citizens are lower than kind of in the, in the neighboring Gulf states. There are also states with Sunni majorities and with expatriate majorities. And I don't think they've been treated as extensively in the scholarship as have uh, neighboring states. So for instance, Stefan has treated uh, the Saudi Islamist case beautifully in Awakening Islam. Um, and so just as rentier state theory as a whole, I think, fails to account for political mobilization in oil-rich states, the literature on political Islam fails in, falls short in describing the Gulf, with most literature focusing on poorer and more democratic states like Egypt and Jordan. So I wanted to, in the book, tie together these two strands of literature for the first time. Um, and by looking particularly at Gulf citizens' involvement in brotherhood movements. Um, I've been asked before why I use the framework of rentier state theory in the book since pretty much everyone who studies the Gulf hates it um, and, and criticizes it. Ultimately, though, I, I just couldn't ignore it um, because I do think that brotherhood movements in the Gulf are fundamentally different from brotherhood affiliates elsewhere due to the rentier nature of these states. And in particular, there are three functions that are normally of critical importance to Muslim brotherhood movements that are simply not relevant or are less relevant in rentier contexts. The first and most obviously, handsome welfare benefits from the state obviate the need for Brotherhood affiliates to provide these, which is of course a means of, of getting followers that they've had in, in other places, particularly Egypt. Second, the organization of electoral campaigns is in, irrelevant in states like Qatar and the UAE, which lack politicized legislatures. Kuwait, of course, is a notable exception with a very active parliament and active Muslim Brotherhood. Third, there's less of a need for the Muslim Brotherhood to provide an alternate social network due to the strength of kind of tribal and clan relations among citizens who also are relatively small numbers in these states. This isn't Cairo of the 1930s. These are relatively tight -knit, <laughs> tighter-knit communities. 
So because the brotherhood in these states doesn't have tangible responsibilities, it can be more flexible in terms of its uh, form and in terms of structure uh, of function, and thus is qualitatively different in my estimation from brotherhood movements in other parts of the region. And so this is kind of what I sought to, to trace, is what exactly these brotherhood movements do in Sopa Rentiers absent these three kind of main uh, responsibilities. And I did find that Islamist movements as a whole in rentier environments are less likely to be placated by government buyouts or payouts, um, making it more probable that they become powerful voices of political opposition potentially or of social mobilization in these states. Indeed, the Brotherhood in the Gulf serves to provide kind of ideological inspiration in states that are often criticized in, as lacking cultural vibrancy. Further, I think in states where modernization has been accompanied by both secularization and uh, westernization, as well as a large number of expatriates, Islamism can become an expression of nationalism and a means of preserving local values. Um, despite this kind of base similarity I saw across the Gulf, across these three cases that I treated, brotherhood branches, even in super rentier states that are strikingly similar in terms of demographic, political, and economic profile, look quite different. So in Kuwait, for instance, uh, the Brotherhood is an institutionalized and accepted part of the political system, which notably involves a very active parliament. In Qatar, the Brotherhood only plays really an informal social role, having dissolved itself in 1999. In the UAE, there's no longer a formal Brotherhood organization um, since kind of the 2012-2014 period. Yet notably, when it did exist, the organization had kind of different form and function across the seven different emirates. So having kind of painted out the broad picture. Now I'm just briefly going to go through each of the country cases to give a better idea of the story in each, starting with Kuwait. So the Kuwaiti Muslim Brotherhood was established actually a decade before Kuwaiti independence in 1951 under the name Jamiat al-Irshad al-Islami, the Islamic Guidance Society, or Irshad. Uh, it was first organized largely to combat creeping Western influence, especially the influence of Christian missionaries who were in Kuwait at the time. Um, the Kuwaiti Brotherhood aimed to Islamize society from the ground up, using the grassroots to create large-level change rather than attempting to get power at the top, which is a hallmark, I think, of, of early-stage kind of Muslim Brotherhood, but also a hallmark of what I call rentier Islamism. Due to the political opportunity structures in these wealthy states that have powerful and large governments, it's simply not possible for Brotherhood movements to butt up against these structures directly. And so instead, I posit that they gain social capital and eventually political <laughs> capital by working through government uh, ministries in particular. And we see this especially across all three cases in education ministries. Um, also, another thing that helped the Brotherhood in the Gulf was um, kind of dislike of Arab nationalists during this period, who were, of course, kind of the main political movements at that time. Um, and after Kuwaiti independence in 1961, uh, the Brotherhood reorganized itself under Jamiat al-Islah al-Shimai, the Social Reform Society, or Islah, which was created to abide by the new laws in the independent Kuwait. Um, it's quite similar, its agenda was quite similar to that of Irshad. It's actually still around as the social arm of the Brotherhood. Um, but it did talk a bit more about political life and about the need to Islamize legislation in particular. With the fall of Arab nationalism kind of in the early 70s, the Brotherhood became an increasingly influential formally entering political life uh, as a bloc in 1981. Throughout the 1980s, the Kuwaiti Brotherhood in Parliament focused on Islamizing society and had some success in passing certain laws on social policy, like getting through a law limiting Kuwaiti nationality to Muslims in 1982, banning the consumption of alcohol in embassies in 1983, and successfully ousting an education minister whom the Brotherhood deemed too secular. When Parliament was dissolved in 1986 and still had not been restored by 1988, Islam for the first time joined a cross-ideological movement, the constitutional movement, to urge for the restoration of legislative life. And I think this shows the first step to, of, of Islam becoming increasingly politicized. 
The efforts of the constitutional movement were ongoing, of course, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in August of 1990. Over the course of the invasion and occupation, the Kuwaiti Brotherhood played a key role in the resistance as well as in providing uh, goods and services for citizens, which is, of course, a task common to Brotherhood movements elsewhere in the Middle East. Notably, the occupation also led to a break with the mother Egyptian organization um, of the Muslim Brotherhood, which had condemned the invasion, but also criticized the non-Arab resolution of it through a US-led coalition. Um, and this, I think this split ultimately granted the Kuwaiti Brotherhood greater freedom to pursue a more localized and nationalistic agenda. And indeed, in the run-up to 19, the 1992 parliamentary elections, the Kuwaiti Brotherhood created a political bloc, Al-Harakat al-Dusturiya al-Islamiyya, the uh, Islamic Constitutional Movement, which I refer to as the ICM. I think this arm of, of the movement can be much more pragmatic in terms of pursuing political aims. And we see that throughout the 1990s, the ICM did pursue limited cooperation with cross-ideological, uh, in cross-ideological coalitions. Ultimately, though, these always tended to crumble um, due to the ICM's stress on social issues. So, for instance, stressing uh, uh, things like gender segregation in schools or proposing a state authority to direct the public to do good and refrain from evil. These types of things alienated secular coalition members who felt that these kind of social issues distracted from what they considered to be more substantive and urgent uh, political and foreign policy issues. I think change came most kind of decisively to the Muslim Brotherhood in Kuwait's uh, agenda in 2006 when the ICM positioned itself fir uh, firmly once again with a cross-ideological opposition movement. Nabi al-Hamsa, the We Want Five movement, which agitated to reduce the number of electoral districts from 25 to 5, which was thought to reduce opportunities for gerrymandering. It was eventually successful, and I think that since that time, the ICM has more or less united with uh, cross-ideological opposition blocs uh, to pressure for political <coughs> reforms and to question ministers in parliament, especially on issues related to corruption, which remains a, a big issue in, in Kuwaiti politics. So during the Arab Spring in 2011, the largest protests in Kuwaiti history were focused largely on corruption, and the ICM joined these uh, protests. In addition, uh, it joined the opposition in boycotting elections held between December 2012 and November 2016 after the uh, voting law was changed to decrease the number of votes per person. So I think the ICM today has firmly become part of an opposition bloc which kind of together decided to re-enter parliament in November 2016. <coughs> And the ICM's agenda today looks very different from how, what it was in the beginning. Uh, some of its main priorities are listed as examining the plight of the stateless population, addressing revocations of citizenship for political reasons, safeguarding the welfare package currently enjoyed by citizens, and changing the electoral law. And so these are very, a far cry from kind of the Islamist social policies that they initially um, were backing. So we see the evolution of the Kuwaiti Brotherhood there. So now we'll move on to the Qatari Brotherhood which like, it started out much like the Kuwaiti, influencing the education system. Um, also, as in Kuwait, the government welcomed Brotherhood influence as a bulwark against Arab nationalism, which was quite violent uh, in, in Doha. The nationalist movement led labor strikes in the 1950s and led the charge for greater political participation in the 1960s. So it was unsurprising that the ruling Al-Thani family encouraged the hiring of Egyptian Brotherhood members for the understaffed and nascent Qatari education system. Until the 1970s, nationalists remained kind of the, dominated the political scene, but you still had influence coming in from the Brotherhood in the education sector, and also with a larger number of, of Qataris returning from having studied abroad in places like Egypt where they saw Brotherhood movements and sought to emulate those at home. So in 1975, the formal Muslim Brotherhood was established in Qatar. In the words of its supreme guide, Jassim Sultan, it was a collaboration, a simple thing. 
And in fact, the founding statement on a single sheet of paper, he said, had been lost, uh, which is a testament either to the fact that he didn't want to give it to me or to how informal the Qatari Brotherhood was even at its height. I'm inclined to believe it's, it's the latter, um, largely due to the fact that the Qatari Brotherhood never really did too much. Um, it was more of a social club than, than anything else, organized the study of Sharia and the Quran, arranged youth and education activities. There was one brief period of organizational expansion in the 1980s when members of the Syrian Brotherhood sought refuge in Qatar. Um, but other than that, it, it was largely social. Um, and during the 1980s, actually, a split emerged between a younger generation that wanted to formalize the Qatari Brotherhood's activities and an older generation that was skeptical about the utility of doing so. This split led to an internal examination in the 1980s and an inter internal study that was published in 1991. The first part of the study focused on examining the ideology of Brotherhood founder Hassan al-Banna, which it criticized for failing to modernize. Um, the second portion, which is very unhelpfully unpublished, um, concerns the Muslim Brotherhood in Qatar specifically and says that it had lost direction, failed to adapt, and was frozen by dogma. So in essence, they decided that there was no benefit to Qatari society in having a formally structured Qatari Muslim Brotherhood. So in 1999, the organization voted unanimously to dissolve itself, a process about which very little is known, but is said to have been completed in 2003. Um, I don't think this dissolution was due to government pressure, since the Qatari Brotherhood was never very politically involved, and since the government had pretty good relations with the Brotherhood. Um, fear about crackdown, however, could have led to this decision being taken. Uh, indeed, in the mid-1990s, there were moves against Brotherhood affiliates in Oman, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. Further, I think really there was just nothing to be gained through an organizational structure since the Brotherhood in Qatar can exist in an amorphous way without compromising itself, potentially raising suspicion or impinging on the government's prerogative. Today, the Brotherhood in Qatar exists only at the very smallest level, kind of the Usra, intimate uh, Quranic recitation circles, things like this, but it is difficult to tell how much popular support exists for Brotherhood ideology in, in a place like Qatar, and especially today when labeling oneself as a member of the Muslim Brotherhood is not uh, is quite politically charged or as a, as a friend of mine says the brand of the Brotherhood today is uh, Blackberry so a lot of times people don't want to be seen as, as associated with it so I think there's a problem of labeling that we have especially in a place like Qatar that is is a, has a conservative pretty conservative uh, citizen population um, <coughs> the Qatari Muslim Brotherhood unlike the Kuwaiti has tended to focus on social policy rather than political reform it never formed a political wing perhaps due to the lack of political opening or satisfaction with the system or due to the fact that a lot of members of the Qatari Brotherhood came from prominent families. So presumably they had access to political power. So because Islamist demands in Qatar have been confined to the social sphere, limited mainly to things like calls for the restriction of sale of alcohol, restrictions on gender mixing, and the imposition of a dress code, the government has never forced a confrontation with the Brotherhood or its supporters and has instead articulated a willingness to work with Islamist organizations both at home and, of course, more controversially abroad. Further, I think due to the prevalence of conservative Islam in, inside Qatar, it is, its state religion is Wahhabism, uh, like Saudi Arabia, calls for social reforms that may have been demanded by Brotherhood branches elsewhere in the region are in fact a reflection of the concerns of a religiously conservative population rather than linked to the Brotherhood. So it's a bit difficult to tease those apart in the Qatari case. Um, so next I'll briefly run through the, the Emirati case. Um, the Emirati Brotherhood existed under the umbrella of Jamiat al-Islah wal Taji al-Ishtimai, the Reform and Social Counseling Association or Islah. Um, it was first founded in 1974 in Dubai, actually as the second, only the second civil society organization to gain permission from the Ministry of Social Affairs to um, form and with funding from Dubai ruler Sheikh Rashid al-Maktoum. Um, 
And it, it's worth noting also that the Emirati case is fundamentally different from the others in that, it, 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 as, as you all may know, there is a federal system there and it's divided into seven emirates which are different in terms of uh, economic capital as well as political capital within, uh, within the country itself. So the first branch of the Brotherhood was founded in Dubai. Later in the 1970s, other branches were established in the Emirates of Fujairah and Ras al-Khaimah with money from Sheikh Rashid. President and Abu Dhabi ruler Sheikh Zayed al Nahyan is said to have given land for a branch to form in that emirate, but ultimately never received permission to do so. Um, there was also no branch in Sharjah, um, perhaps due to the prominence of Arab nationalism or traditional links to the Saudi ulema. There was also not one in Umm al Qawain, if you're interested, and in Ajman, the Brotherhood existed under the umbrella of an organization called Irshad. Nonetheless, the Emirati Brotherhood as a whole was involved in social and cultural activities, much like the other brotherhoods in their beginning. Uh, Islam was more organized than the Qatari Brotherhood, though, in that it did uh, produ produce a publication called Islam. And its articles tended to focus on benefits of Islamic education, censorship of inappropriate Western materials, restricting the sale of alcohol, stopping the general encroachment of Western culture, and discussion of some political issues like corruption. Throughout the 70s and 80s, members of Islam enjoyed ministerial positions. They were very much welcomed in, in leadership positions, especially in the ministries of education, justice, and al-Qaf. Uh, or Islamic affairs, um, with the education ministry notably under the leader of uh, Ras al-Khaimah's branch of Islam until 1983. Um, Islam also, I think, as it developed, became more and more politically involved, um, <coughs> pressing for more representative government and more equal distribution of wealth across the emirates, perhaps <coughs> due to its popularity in the poorer northern emirates, especially Ras al-Khaimah. I think that the, the, this concerned the Emirati government. Um, and there were also concerns about Islamist movements in the mid-1990s across the Gulf. Um, allegations about Islam's misconduct from then Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak, who claimed in 1994 that Islam's charity had uh, funded Egyptian Islamic Jihad, uh, a claim for which I, I haven't found evidence, um, but it, this provided, I think, the first opportunity for the Emirati government to move against Islam. Uh, that year, the government dissolved uh, Islam's elected Emirate-level boards of directors, placing them under the supervision of the Ministry of Social Affairs and banned any members from holding public office. A second crackdown took place uh, involving hundreds of arrests following the 9-11 attacks, I think, as the Emirati government was eager to prove itself uh, willing to crack down on any type of potentially harmful Islamism in that period. Islam notably more recently did work with secular reformers to draft a petition urging political reform in 2011. This petition um, wasn't too outrageous in its demands, mainly had to do with expanding the role of uh, the Federal National Council, which is the only elected body in the UAE. Um, and so it seems that the government didn't take issue with that petition, but rather with the role of Islam members, perhaps in that or perhaps more broadly in, in across the UAE. And by the end of 2012, 94 members of Islam had been arrested as security threats, with the government claiming to have received confessions from imprisoned Islam members that their organization had an armed wing and intended to overthrow the government to reestablish the caliphate. Um, a claim that's not substantiated by any independent Islam documents, public statements, or in my conversations with members. Um, still, in November 2014, the UAE dubbed Islam a terrorist organization on a list that also included the Cordoba Foundation and the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Um, this notably came eight months after Saudi Arabia uh, banned the Muslim Brotherhood as a, a terrorist organization. So we see this move against, against the Brotherhood more broadly across the Gulf. So just to conclude, I think the Brotherhood as an organization whose ideology dictates that Islam should be part of every aspect of life exists in super-rentier states in both the social and political realms. Um, and using the social to gain access to the political according to the political opportunity structures of these states. 
The movement in all three countries began with the goal of Islamizing society in the face of foreign, especially Western, encroachment. And since their establishment, these groups have altered their priorities to varying degrees. The Kuwaiti Muslim Brotherhood, of course, has come to privilege electoral success over the initial social agenda it pushed in the 1980s. The Qatari Muslim Brotherhood, on the other hand, has favored the more amorphous, and uh, amorphous role, um, pushing ideological and social elements of the Brotherhood's agenda. Um, and finally, the Emirati Muslim Brotherhood, before the most recent crackdown in 2012, operated, I think, in a space between the purely political as, um, as inhabited by the Kuwaiti Brotherhood and the more amorphous represented by the Qatari Muslim Brotherhood. So while some members did advocate for, political, for social reforms, Islam in the UAE came to voice concerns about political freedoms more broadly, thereby leading to some restrictions from the regime, and also enabling, uh, uh, ensuring that Islam would not become as politically organized or politically effective as the ICM, for instance, in Kuwait. So renter Islamism then is a domestic political arrangement in which brotherhood affiliates exercise political capital through informal means, despite the presence of hydrocarbon wealth. Ideological affinity contributes to both social and political capital, which are particularly linked in under-institutionalized states of the Gulf. As such, I believe that the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamism more broadly will remain uh, part of the political discourse in the Gulf for a long time. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Courtney, for uh, this presentation and for uh, inviting me for this book launch. Uh, it's a great honor to be here. Um, I've been uh, following your work with great excitement for the last few years. Um, um, there's no much of a conflict of interest. Actually, we've met maybe three, four times, but we don't know each other that well, which is also a good thing because all the praise I'm going to say is not a friend complimenting a friend. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, um, um, it, it comes from uh, my following of Kutner's work and, of course, reading her book. Um, so um, so I, I think this book is, 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 uh, is, as has been said, a wonderful addition to what we have. Um, the, the, uh, the three monographs of uh, the history of the Muslim Brotherhood in the three countries, uh, as far as I know, are completely new. There's nothing like that that exists on the market. So this is uh, groundbreaking in that sense. Um, I'm especially uh, impressed by the UAE, which uh, is uh, uh, probably the lesser known, the more difficult to research. Uh, one PhD student at Durham University knows about this. Some of you may have seen the news. Uh, fortunately, uh, the, the, it wasn't that bad, I think, when you were there. It became worse with the time. Yeah. But, uh, but this is not easy to research. So it's also important to always have in mind that those are topics that require um, um, a lot of energy and a lot of caution. Uh, and, and I think, again, when reading Courtney, we should have that in mind. Um, the, um, um, so so um, it's also, of course, a great addition to the, to, to the critique of the renter state, as has been made clear in Courtney's presentation, I think. Uh, well, the critique of the renter state is already quite uh, developed. I think no one today would defend the, 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 the renter state as it was developed anymore. But, uh, but I think here we have a very, very good illustration of uh, why politics do exist in renter states and what renter politics means. Um, it's interesting also that uh, it's probably changing, right? Uh, I was reading your book and I was thinking about the current changes, thinking about how uh, renter politics used to be 
I mean, in the Gulf, at least, as it was expressed in the Gulf, used to be about distribution, co-optation, negotiation, influencing, neutering sometimes, but rarely about, you know, bare repression, which was always one of the uh, paradoxical facts about the Gulf, right? People looked at it from afar as those are absolute monarchies where, you know, there is this sultan who can do whatever he wants. And actually, when you looked inside the box, it wasn't really like that. There was politics, there was debate. Yes, there was always an interplay between society and the regime, and people were being controlled, and yes, all of this did exist. But there was a space, because precisely this, uh, the, the, this was what you call venture uh, Islamism, venture politics in that sense. And it did exist for Islamists, as it did exist for others. I mean, the book is full of, uh, of leftists as well, popping up once in a while, because those are the enemies of the Islamists, as, as, as much as you have uh, Islamists trying to influence the government, you have leftists doing the, the same thing on the other side. So there were politics, which is why also, I mean, it's really important to, to see the, 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 the dramatic change we're witnessing today, I think, which started in the Emirates maybe 10 years ago with the rise of Mohammed bin Zayed, which is happening today in Saudi Arabia with the rise of Mohammed bin Salman. This is new. This is not what it used to be. And it's really fundamental to, to, um, to understand that. And it's not just that suddenly MBZ and MBS decided that they don't like Islamists anymore. What we're witnessing is not just a change of position on the Islamists. What we're witnessing is something much more profound, which is a change in the nature of the state and in the nature of politics in those countries. Um, so th th that was just a footnote, but I thought it was, it was important. Um, what, uh, what you make also is a great argument uh, about, uh, about Islamism itself uh, and about why Islamism is about the power of ideas, right? And I think, again, uh, it's, you know, the, 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 the old argument about Islamism, the one you find in, in the 80s, 90s still quite a bit, and still, unfortunately, quite a bit today, is that, you know, it's those people who support Islamists, they're, they're poor, mm -hmm. uh, they're illiterate, uh, they, um, they do so because, they, they, you know, they want the welfare. So you have the, the argument that basically Islamists buy votes by, you know, uh, distributing welfare. And there's an argument you... I mean, you'd sit in a salon in Cairo with uh, pretty much any liberal uh, Egyptian, and he would tell you that. You know, these people who vote for the Muslim Brotherhood, they're doing this because, because they're illiterate, because they're poor, and because the Muslim Brotherhood feed them. And uh, I think the, the critique of that has been rising. There's been a number of works. You quote some of them, Kerry Wickham uh, on Egypt, uh, uh, um, Janine Clark, uh, who actually looked at the social outreach of the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan and came to the conclusion that actually they're not trying to reach out to the poor, they're actually trying to maintain their own base. It's middle class oriented. It's not uh, so much about trying to reach out to the poor and get their votes. It's about you know, keep, keep maintaining the cohesion of the movement by, uh, uh, by uh, providing services to the middle class members of the movement. So I think, again, this, 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 th those were counterintuitive arguments. And I think Courtney really uh, follows in that with a fantastic example. That's not just about the Gulf in the end, right? Again, it's about Islamism in general, right? I think the argument you're making is not just that these Islamists are different. This may not be so different. Uh, I think, again, the, the importance of, uh, of uh, you know, welfare for gaining support has been generally uh, overestimated. I think we have to go back to the power of ideas. And again, the, uh, what you could call the leftist reading of, of many social scientists in the Arab world in the 80s and 90s, or in the West, you know, the inability of Western scholars for a while to understand the appeal of religion, per se. There has to be something behind it, right? There has to be a reason why those people vote Islamists. 
And again, I think the, the golf example is great to, uh, to contribute to that discussion and provides a fantastic illustration of, of, uh, of that point. Um, I have a few questions. And um, as a disclaimer, I've, before I ask my questions, I should say that most of them are about things that are on the periphery of your book. So uh, the, the, those are not critiques of what you should have said. It's just to open up the discussion to other things. Um, one thing that I, that, I, that I was wondering is about the transnational links between those different brotherhood movements. Um, I know for, for having worked on Saudi Arabia that they do have quite a few links yeah. to Saudi Arabia and to the networks in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I mean, the Gulf is, is, is a quite a strongly integrated area where people travel constantly between countries. I mean, it, and now there's the GCC, used to be the GCC, we'll see what happens to the GCC. But, um, but, but, but you know, th there are a lot of connections here and, and maybe uh, be interesting to uh, say something more about those connections. Um, I think also, I was, I was thinking while reading your book, uh, uh, it's also a great illustration of how unrevolutionary the Muslim Brotherhood is, how non-revolutionary. I mean, I think that there's a complete misunderstanding about the Muslim Brotherhood here. And, 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 and if you speak to the UAE guys today, they would say, oh, these guys want a revolution. They want a complete upheaval of the region. And actually, you know, the, there's, there's not a more pragmatic and conservative group than the Muslim Brotherhood. And I think those different cases show it pretty well. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, it was the same thing. I mean, I studied the, 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 the Muslim Brotherhood networks in Saudi Arabia. These guys were pro-regime all the time. And when they stopped to be pro-regime, it only lasted for a couple of years in the early 90s, and they were really the last on board. Like, when everyone started to move, then they decided to move, which is a little bit like the, the same thing in Egypt. Uh, this is not a critique. This is just a, 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 you know, we really have to understand that this is not the way they think about politics. They have a much more pragmatic and conservative way of thinking about politics. Um, second question, yes, I'm coming back to my questions. Um, I was wondering if what you're saying about the Islamists applies to all the other groups. Is there a rentier leftism? Like, because you speak about the leftists, right? Is it something so specific to the Islamists per se, or <coughs> is it something that applies to, or uh, rentier Arab nationalism, right? Because the Arab nationalists, particularly in Kuwait, were, were very strong at some points. Um, the the uh, third question I had in mind was, um, about the international organization of the Brotherhood, which, uh, which uh, I mean, uh, used to exist, doesn't exist anymore, by the way. Uh, if you, it's been dead since the 90s. But it was an attempt from the seven, 1973 to the early 90s to try to bring together all the, uh, all the, uh, all the Brotherhood movements into one common umbrella. Um, and what is interesting is that the reason, if I remember well, the reason why it failed uh, is because of what happened in 1990 when uh, Saddam invaded Kuwait uh, and when the Brotherhood split, right? The Gulf Brotherhood <laughs> was against the invasion of Kuwait, obviously, and was not very comfortable with the idea of having the Americans liberate Kuwait, but, you know, had to support it in some way. And the other Brotherhood branches were obviously against the American presence. So here you did have quite a, quite a split, and the split was fundamental here, I think, because it kind of divided the Brotherhood into two types of Brotherhoods, right? I think the Gulf Brotherhood from that day was seen as slightly different, right? There was this split, um, and it also killed the organization because the international organization was funded by the Gulf Brotherhoods. They were the, those were the guys with the money. So when the guys with the money say, we don't want to be with you in the same organization anymore, then uh, the organization collapsed. 
So I, uh, uh, so I think also the, 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 that's, uh, that's a point that uh, could be expanded on. Um, I uh, have one last question. Actually, I had four and not five. Um, you, um, you don't discuss too much ideology, and I think it's not your point at all to, to go into the details <laughs> of the ideology. But, uh, but there is something about the Gulf Brotherhood that also distinguishes them. They're more Salafi, all of them, being Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the Emirates, or Qatar, right? I mean, and, and if you speak to Ikhwan elsewhere, they will, you know, this is kind of an agreement that, oh, you know, the Gulf Brotherhood are more Salafi, in terms of theology, in terms of, um, um, it has to do with the environment and, and, and the, 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 um, uh, the, uh, the, the cross-fertilization that happened when they came in an environment where Salafis were already influential, etc. cetera. Um, not going back to that story, but I was wondering if this is not something that could also explain that behavior, right? Can we make an argument about the Muslim brother as a whole based on those very particular brothers who politically also and theologically have a slightly different type of background? Um, I'll uh, end with this, and again to congratulate you for a wonderful read, which I uh, recommend to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Toby, um, and thanks, uh, Courtney and uh, and Stefan. Um, and, and, and what I I'm just just listen to Stefan. Uh, what I want to do is to sort of build on some of the, the thoughts that he's expressed about this book, which is, uh, which is a very good book. I wish this book had been around when I was doing the Muslim Brotherhood Review because it would have saved me a lot of time. <laughs> it would have saved me a lot of travel to, 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 to all the countries uh, that Courtney uh, uh, deals with. And indeed, uh, sh we, she and I talked to many of the same people and read many of the same sources when we were uh, looking at this. But this book, as Stefan said, is actually fills a gap because there isn't anything like it that I know of. Uh, there's quite a lot of material out there in Arabic, um, some of it partisan. Uh, in different ways, and some in English, uh, which talks about uh, some of these issues, but nothing that pulls, uh, pulls it all together. Um, I also think that if you read this book, I mean, it's like one of those, those, those things on, on Spotify or, 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 um, or Tidal. If you like this, you're going to like Stefan's books. Um, uh, which, 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 I'm not sure if you're going to get a discount on them <laughs> or not. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and indeed, Thomas Heghammer's uh, uh, work on, and indeed, Madari Rashid's latest uh, stuff on unmuted modernists uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think this, this Rontier framework is interesting. I think the Rontier framework can be very rigid, but, it, but actually more recently, as Stefan said, it's become far more, 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 more sophisticated, the sort of stuff that Michael Herb does and what Stefan, uh, Stefan does uh, in, 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 in looking at the, the political economy uh, of, of, uh, of the Gulf states uh, is, is far more sophisticated and a far more subtle instrument uh, in dealing with this. And that brings me on to the second point, which is when we look at this issue of, 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 of Islamism in, in the Gulf states, you're looking at something which, is, which, is, which, is, which, has, which has an ideology, but which is also shaped contextually by, by history, by the political sociology situated in a historical context in the individual countries. And when you look at, at, at the way in which these movements have developed and are developing in indiv individual countries, uh, you need to bear that in mind, because, because many of, of, of what seem to be um, uh, differences are in fact explained by the different historical experiences of these groups. If you think of Kuwait, um, uh, you, I don't think you're going to look at, at, I mean Kuwait of course attained independence in 1951, this was, it, was, it was the first of the Gulf states to be independent. It was the first welfare state in the Gulf. I mean, if you look at the model that, uh, uh, that 
evolved in Kuwait after the discovery of oil and after the constitutional crisis of the 1930s, so uh, under, uh, uh, under Ahmed Jaba and, and uh, under Abdullah Salam in particular in the 1950s. This was very distinctive. And if you look at the way that the, the politics in Kuwait, and, the, and there were politics in all Gulf states, I mean, anybody who, was, who studied the history of the Emirates, for example, in the 1970s, the, the, the massive debates over the, over the Federation uh, and, and what followed the Federation and the different relations with the different Emirates, will know there were politics. There was always politics. It may look like something which isn't politics, but there was always politics. If you look at Kuwait <coughs> from the 1950s through the, the, the intensely nationalist, Arab nationalist uh, 19, 1960s, when Kuwait was a hub for, uh, for leftist uh, and Arab nationalist politics in the whole of the Gulf region and indeed in the Horn of Africa and in, in, and in Yemen. Uh, what you see, I think, is, is an interesting... Um, uh, it's almost like a dance, a dance of power between the different, the different, the different groups, different fields. I mean, the, I know Toby's a big fan of Bourdieu. Um, I I, and actually, one of, the, one, of the, one of, for me, one of the most interesting accounts of, of, of brotherhood and other forms of Islamism in Egypt is that by Hazen Kandil uh, out of uh, Cambridge, which is my university, which again is almost as good as LSE. Um, uh, um, <laughs> um, but he takes a very Bourdieuian approach to this in terms of power fields and, 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 and the accumulation of social and political capital. Uh, and what you, what you see, and actually one of the interesting things about Egypt, it seems to me, is the Muslims in Egypt misunderstood the game in which they were, the game they were playing. They were in this sort of game, they thought they were in a different sort of game. And this is something I think we, we have seen in, in some other places, including Jordan, which I'll come to in a minute. Um, and if you look at what the Sabah did, in the, I mean, the Sabah, of course, originally were, were Primus and Tapares. They were the clan which was, which was delegated um, by the Beni Uttab to represent their interests uh, commonly in the 18th century. Uh, and then what they did in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s was escape from this. They escaped from it because of the availability of oil revenue. And what you see in the 1960s is the Sabah seeking con to construct uh, 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 alliances of, 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 of interest or indeed of convenience with sometimes with members of the merchant elite but more frequently with newly naturalized uh, 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 tribal figures um, uh, and some Islamists but mainly tribal figures which has shaped Kuwaiti politics to this day. It continues to shape what we see, what we see in Kuwait. And I think that, that dialectic between the different uh, forces inside a particular society framed by a particular historical uh, uh, political sociology is, 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 is important and actually, I think, very interesting. Um, I think, coming back to Jordan, I mean, we, we talk about this, the, the, Gulf, the, 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 the Brotherhood in the Gulf being, being distinctive. I, I'm not entirely persuaded by that. I think there, is, there are ideological um, uh, uh, con congruences um, between uh, uh, the Brotherhood in the Gulf and the Brotherhood elsewhere. Uh, in particular, there are personal relationships which go back, which go back decades. Um, uh, and, and I think if you look at, at, at groupings, and I think the 1990, the, the invasion of Kuwait was clearly a turning point, especially when you had that, that, that high-level delegation of, of, of brothers uh, touring the region, uh, which included Zindani from Kuwait, Ghanoushi uh, from Tunisia, Qardawi, uh, uh, Turabi from, 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 I mean, the Sudanese experience, again, is very different, but, 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 but Turabi from Sudan. And, and they were going, we, we will have, we were broker a Muslim Brotherhood solution to this, as they claimed they had brokered in Yemen, in, in actually in the 40s and, and the 1960s, which actually in Yemen involved trying to overthrow the government. But that was, that was a, that's a different matter. And that was one of the things that, that, that split 
the movement. And I think this issue of funding was, was, was very important because Kuwait was the hub for the funding, the Gulf funding of, of, of the Brotherhood more generally. The issue of international Muslim Brotherhood is absolutely right. As, as Stefan says, it, it, it doesn't exist. You can go on, 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 uh, on the web and find the, the articles of association of this. It did matter at one point. It mattered for about 10, 10 to 15 years from the, from the mid-80s to the mid-90s. Um, that was largely because of the personality or the personalities of the, of the Murshid and the deputy Murshid at the time. Uh, who, were, who were seeking to drive this, which illustrates the importance of personalities in this. If you now look at, at groupings of, of, of brotherhood Islamists and other sorts of Islamists around the world, it's similar figures from, I mean, you still get Ghanoushi there, you still get Turabi, you, you, well, you don't get Turabi anymore, but you, but you, but you, get, uh, you get Nasser Sane from Kuwait, uh, you get uh, occasionally someone like Hassan Adduki, who of course gone back, going back to, 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 to the Emirates anymore. Uh, you get Karadawi. It's... This is a social network, essentially, and it's a very complex organism. But in a way, this has always been the strength of the Brotherhood, both, 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 both domestically inside individual countries, including in the Gulf, and internationally. It is the power of the network. The strength inheres in this. Um, and that's, it, that seems to me interesting. W one other interesting feature, which wasn't really covered in, in, in the book, which is maybe the subject for your next book or the, or the rewrite, is the relationship and this comes back to this issue of the particular political sociologies of individual countries between, between Sunni Islamisms and Shia Islamisms. Uh, in the, now, this is particularly um, uh, uh, relevant in the case of, uh, of Kuwait, um, which has always had a Shia representation in parliament. The relations between the Shia and the Sunni in, 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 uh, in Kuwait are themselves, to a certain extent, uh, determined by the historical experience of, of, of both of them, going back to the going back to the resistance to, 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 to Abdul Aziz to the Saudis in the 20s, to the, to the Battle of the Red Fort, and indeed to the role that the Shia played during the invasion of Kuwait. You talk about the Brotherhood uh, playing a role during the invasion of Kuwait. Shia will tell you they played a role during the invasion of Kuwait in, in, in sustaining the resistance inside Kuwait as well. And if you look at the Shia representation, some of them are the, 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 the more recent merchant classes. Some are, are, are Shirazis. When they had the disturbances in 79 after the Iranian Revolution, that was led out of a mosque in Shark in Kuwait, which was which, where there was a particular preacher who was affiliated to the Shirazis, um, who then actually sought political asylum in the UK um, uh, when he was kicked out. There were others who belonged to, to Dawah, which comes out of, uh, if you look at Bahrain, a lot of that is influenced by Dawah. Uh, now, the relationship between Dawah and the Brotherhood, ideologically, is an interesting one, because if you go back to the foundation of Dawah in the late 50s, or indeed to... To, to groups like uh, Farai and, uh, 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 Islam in, 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 in Iran in the, late, in the late 40s and their relationship with the circles around Khomeini, you will see a lot of brotherhood uh, parallels and, and a lot of influence. You have to remember that, you know, that, that uh, Khamenei translated Qutb into, into, uh, into Persian. Khomeini uh, had links to, to, to Maududi. I think that plays into the way in which these groups compete within individual countries, uh, Kuwait in particular, but also Bahrain. I remember when I was doing the brotherhood, uh, review in, in 2014, uh, and I, I, I went to Bahrain, <coughs> and, I, and I wanted to speak to uh, a member who, of course, are Brotherhood, and they refused to meet me on the grounds uh, that they had nothing to tell me because they weren't Brotherhood. This, of course, was after the events of 2011, uh, when they had been, and what you see in Bahrain is a co-optation of Sunnis of all sorts uh, uh, um, to the side of the, of, of the monarchy, and, and uh, th 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 there was... And you saw that you saw that graphically. I mean, you see graphically anyway in terms of the geographical distribution of, of Sunnah and Shia in, in, in Bahrain. But you also saw it in that, in that great 
that great counter demonstration that the Sunnis uh, had at the, at the Al Fatah Mosque in, 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 in Manama uh, during events of, of, um, of, of early 2011. And this was so. What takes priority? The fact that you are you are, you are brothers, or the fact that you are aligned with 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 with, with the ruling class, uh, uh, which also construes in some way. I mean, I think Bahrain is an incredibly complex situation, but construes its authority and legitimacy in some ways flowing from the sectarianization of politics inside, inside Bahrain. So that sectarian, that sectarian angle, uh, it, it seems to me interesting. Coming back to the Emirates, I mean, I, I, the Emirates, Abu Dhabi was my very first posting in the Middle East as a diplomat in, in the, in the, in the mid-'80s. Um, and I remember going up to the, um, uh, to the, uh, the huge Islah compound in, in, uh, in Dubai of the Alliance uh, Road uh, and, and, uh, and, and talking to them. And I used to read Al-Mishtama, which is, was their, um, uh, their, their, their magazine, um, uh, uh, every week, um, which was cruel and unusual punishment, I have to say. Um, <coughs> uh, these were the days of Sheikh Zayed, of course. Now, Sheikh Zayed, I mean, I'm always a member that, that every, every week there'd be, there'd be two or three big splash photographs on the front page of the Arabic newspapers and, and, the, and uh, uh, the Khalij Times and, um, and Gulf News of Sheikh Zayed doing things with farmers out in, out in around El Ayn or down the, in, in, in the Batin, out in the desert. Pomelo farmers was a big thing. Now this, was, this, is, this is a form of projecting development legitimacy and actually it's, 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 it's an interesting way of doing it because Zayed was genuinely interested in encouraging farming. He was genuinely interested in greening the environment in Abu Dhabi. And I thought, what you see in Abu Dhabi now is a product of that. He would also, every week, receive delegations from, from, from all over the, the, the Muslim world, in some cases the non-Muslim world, and give them lots of money for good causes. And it was quite indiscriminate, quite honestly. Um, that model worked for Zayed because Zayed was who he was. I don't think it works when it worked when Zayed went. And it didn't really, I mean, it was interesting why Al-Islah were headquartered in, 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 in Dubai. I mean, I, I always thought that was to do with the, with the, with the rivalry between the two, the two Emirates. But that in itself reflects, indicate, talk, points to something about the way the Emirates itself was constituted. You talk about the seven Emirates. There has always been this tension between the, between the different Emirates, particularly between, you know, between uh, uh, Abu Dhabi and, and uh, Dubai. And, and, and the northern, I mean, Omar Gawain, I mean, there's, no, I mean, there's nothing in Omar Gawain. You, you blink and you miss it. It's, it's, I'm not surprised there isn't an Islam um, uh, center in Omar Gawain. But essentially, their strengths came from the northern Emirates and they came from Russell Khaimah. Uh, if you think about the history of the, of, of the Emirates, you know, this Russell Khaimah was a great Khawasim um, uh, stronghold in, in the 18th century. The Khawasim were, were, were associated with the rise of the first Saudi state. They allied themselves with them against the Amanis, against the, 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 the Sheikh of Muscat and, 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 and Bahrain and so forth. And I think this echoes. And, and I think if you look at, if, there is fragility inside, inside the Emirates. I genuinely think, it, and this is a model which is distinct from any other economic model in the Gulf. It is a model which is one million, few than one million Emiratis, there's nine million expatriates. If you look at Dubai, I mean, Dubai can seem to some like Babylon on Gulf. And, and this is a model that actually works. It has been very successful. It's also a model that attracts a lot of young Arabs. There's an interesting statistic about the number of young Saudi women, for example, who go and live in Dubai. I, mean, I, I, I liked Dubai back in the 1980s. That's because I'm an old Orientalist. But, but, it's, it's, but, but if you look at it now, but it works for a lot of young Arabs. 
Now, you may say the, 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 the Adenabians are paranoid about all sorts of things, but actually, there is a fragility there that is contestable. And when, and when you're faced with groups, for whatever reason, who contest the normative basis of your legitimacy, and I think that's the point about this. It is about ideas. It's about ideology underneath this. And it's about normative, it's about normative control. And I think that's why they do what <coughs> they do. And I'll shut up. Brilliant. Thank you. While Courtney is gathering her thoughts, I will cunningly um, sum up the five questions that our, our discussants have posed to her uh, and merge the two somewhat. The first is about the transnational, actually trans-Gulf links between the Muslim brother, brothers and then JJ's point that basically the brotherhood is a social network and more to do with personal relations than anything else. The second one, which I very much liked, and, and as, as Stefan said, has echoes in your book, is there a rentier leftism, which I, I thought was interesting. Yeah. And then the, the next big issue that, that both JJ and Stefan focused on is about the split and the collapse, question mark, of the, the brotherhood, the, the Ikhwan International, after 1990. And the fourth is uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and the Gulf being more Salafist, and then that goes to JJ's point about them being socially and, so, and historically situated. Uh, the sixth is the interaction, almost the mirroring or the dialectical interaction between Shia Islamists and Sunni Islamists, but also I suppose it gets back to the, <coughs> the Ikhwan rentierism of, about are the Ikhwan in situ in the Gulf more Sunni than Ikhwan, as it were, uh, tied to the ruling class and the ruling class's strategies of rule and paranoia about the Shia. And finally, the sixth question is about the fragility of the Emirates, and I suppose I can draw that out. So why has the Brotherhood been so ferociously repressed in the Emirates? Is it not because of the paranoia of key Emirati leaders, but because they're challenging the normative basis of those leaders to rule, and th those leaders, whatever this modernist Islamism is? So those are six. Pick any or all of them while the audience is counting out their tenors to buy the book, but also thinking of questions to ask Courtney as well. Okay. Uh, thank you, and thanks, thanks for that. Um, so as far as the first question about transnational links, I would agree um, with John's uh, comments about it being the Brotherhood essentially being, JJ, over there, you know, um, it being a social network essentially. And, and I think that oftentimes, especially today when people talk about transnational networks, they think there's something inherently nefarious about them, when in fact these are often just people who know each other because they, they run in the same circles in the same way that um, you know, I know people from Atlanta, Georgia, and London. So I think it's, it's, it's not necessarily an ideologically based type of movement. Um, as far as uh, rentier leftism, I think that might be my next book. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I did think about this and, and the idea that, you know, is, is it kind of a counterpoint? And I think, the, the problem with leftism is that a lot of times it's based on kind of class or economic, it's a class or economic based movement rather than one that's more based on kind of religious ideology, but um, it's definitely something worth looking at. And there's a tons in the archives about kind of the, the fear of Arab nationalists in the Gulf, so there's a lot of material there um, to go on. Um, I guess uh, I don't have much to say about the collapse of the, the International Brotherhood. Um, as far as the Brotherhood in the Gulf being more Salafi, um, I agree. I, I think it's interesting, though, that despite the fact that they are more Salafi in terms of ideology, they label themselves as 
brotherhood. Um, and there's something interesting there. And so, for instance, the, the biggest kind of rentier Islamist figure is Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who's very much of the Muslim Brotherhood. So it's interesting that, that the figures who are chosen are, are not as often Salafi figures, or they're not as, as prominent um, in, in that environment. Um, as far as the Shia-Sunni division, I think it's, it's really fascinating. And I'm actually just put in a funding application with some other academics to look at what we call the other Islamists, so looking at Shia Islamists, because what I found is that looking at, at what the, the different is Shia Islamist ideologies actually are and what they, how they're translated into policy, there's very little in that, in, in Arabic or in English. So I think um, that, we, at least in the Gulf, um, but if, if you guys have any recommendations, that would be useful. Um, so that definitely deserves some more attention. Um, and as far as the UAE, I, I think that, that you're right, the, that the brotherhood model does challenge kind of the normative basis of the Emirati state. It's also, in, I, it's ideologically based, so it can't be bought off. I do think there is this tension between the way that, uh, the way that Abu Dhabi and Dubai have treated Islam in particular. So, I mean, I know that in, in Dubai, traditionally, there was more of a willingness to sit down with members of Islam and talk to them and say, kind of, what can we do to, to make you happy, why are you joining this group? Let me tell you more about the group. Whereas in Abu Dhabi, the um, the tendency was more just to kind of stem the tide of any kind of Islamist uh, fervor. So, uh, I it's uh, I think there that tension kind of gets caught in in the the kind of collapse of Islam in the UAE generally. And again, it does re reveal the fragility and the the distinct political. Uh, I guess political priorities across the different emirates. So you have people in the northern emirates m who are much more willing to talk about corruption and government spending and inequality um, in terms of political capital and so and economic capital than are people from perhaps Abu Dhabi or Dubai. Great, that's very uh, economical. Right, we have a microphone here. So if you put your hands up and then when I pick you, you say who you are and then you ask a question. And the point about a question is it's short and it has a question mark at the end of it. You so first, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Hisham Hellier from RUSI and the Atlantic Council. So my question, and first, I haven't read the book. I'm looking forward to reading the book because of all of the wonderful things that have been said. So congratulations, Courtney. Um, and thank you to Stefan and JJ for some very interesting insights. Um, the question that I had, uh, it, it's really about how you describe Islamism and how that translates into seeing how Islam and religion is instrumentalized with regards to this entire discussion because I think that goes a long way in understanding the role of the MB, uh, and you're speaking specifically, I assume, about the MB in the book, um, with regards to these states. Um, uh, you brought up Sheikh Zayed, JJ. Uh, Sheikh Zayed intervened on behalf of Muslim scholars in Saudi Arabia during his tenure because of a threat that he saw um, being directed at other types, um, more normative types historically, of Islam in Saudi Arabia. Okay, um, that changes obviously through time, but it means that each of these rentier states that you're talking about, they have a sense of what normative Islam is all about. They don't reject it. They don't reject religion per se. They don't even reject Islam per se, or even the instrumentalization of Islam per se. It's about what they regard to be problematic, whether we agree or not, um, from the MB. Um, and how they would choose to rearrange, particularly the power dynamics. And here I think ideas are very important. Um, I also, uh, just as a, a slight quibble with you, Stefan, someone I know, someone's work I, uh, I like very, very much. I would say that the MB actually are not pragmatic yeah. as that anymore. I think particularly post-2013. 
I think that you see something very, very different. Pre-2013, we have more of a, dis I think there's more of a consensus around that. But post-2013, definitely not. And I would argue that it even goes further back than 2013, particularly post-2011. And it explains a lot of what happens in Libya, um, in, in Egypt, and to a lesser extent, other places. Thank you. That Thank wasn't you. a model question, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Just the gentleman with his pen up in the air, should we give it to him? And then after that, the gentleman three rows behind. No, well, all right, we'll go there and we'll come back. Yeah. Uh, thank you. My name is uh, Ali Bahajoum and I'm a journalist. Uh, I was actually surprised that uh, during your presentation, you haven't mentioned the birthplace of the Brotherhood movement, Egypt, which is the largest uh, movement in the Middle East. And if I may ask, is there uh, a conflict in the Gulf between uh, the Brotherhood movement and the Shiite groups? Thank you. Okay, and now, yeah, if you put your hand right up, so you can see up there, yeah. thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, greatly enjoyed it. I'd like to react very quickly to something that, to a question that was put, put to you by Sir John, uh, and, and then ask a very brief question. Uh, on the um, RMB's Sunni, more Sunni than Ikhwan, I think as far as the Bahraini case is concerned, and I've been fortunate enough to write on this with, with Laurence Loer, um, yes, only in times of crisis. Uh, so, so as a matter of fact, uh, creating a, a unified Sunni coalition has yeah. always been a failure for Bahraini Sunnis up until 2011. Yeah. Uh, and then they coalesce under the, the gathering of national unity. And then a year, year and a half later, it all, it all goes uh, to, um, I don't want to use a profane to word, something. but it goes to something. And indeed. your question is? And my question is, um, I actually had the pleasure of reading your book and of, of reviewing it, as a matter of fact. Um, and I would strongly recommend it. I think it's essential reading for, for students of, of, of Gulf politics and, and Islamism. Um, my only question is, you used the concept of political opportunity structure to explain the differences in the forms of Muslim Brotherhood politics across the rentier states, right? So they're all super rentiers. The political economy is the same, but they take different forms. And you explain that this is the result of the political opportunity structures, which I understand you define as the... Uh, different uh, uh, extents of institutionalization and how much really the state allows for organized political activity. And I think while that does explain the difference between the Muslim Brotherhood in Kuwait on the one hand and uh, being institutionalized and with Hades and, and so on, uh, and on the other hand uh, uh, Qatar and the UAE not being institutionalized, it doesn't really tell us uh, why uh, there are differences between the Muslim Brotherhood experience in Qatar and the UAE. Uh, because uh, I mean, they both uh, faced a similar opportunity structure, uh, very limited opportunity for organized political activity, yet the Qataris dissolve in 1999 and the Emiratis don't. And I think that's a fundamental question that the, that the book did not address that I wish uh, it did. And that's an excellent question. Thank you. And the, the fourth one, the, the final one in this grouping, I'll come back to you, Bronwyn, in the next round. Is the gentleman at the back, if you could keep your hand up. Yeah, yep, there you go. Right at the back there. And then Bronwyn, you'll be next in the round next time. Hi, I'm Gareth Brown. I'm a journalist with The National. Um, Courtney, I want to ask you about the, the potential for um, a kind of Muslim Brotherhood movement within the diaspora. Obviously, we've seen this kind of clampdown recent years, particularly in the Gulf. 
you know, do you see the kind of emergence of a of a, a kind of Gulf diaspora related to the Muslim Muslim Brotherhood, and kind of what sort of threat could that pose, or not, or, or lack of threat could that pose in the in the years to come? Excellent, thanks. So you've got four questions. Uh, do you want me to remind you, or have you got uh, them down? I think path? I think I've got them. Excellent. Um, right. Yeah. So first question about uh, the extent to which Islam is instrumentalized, I guess, in in these contexts. I mean, I guess it is instrumentalized. I guess my point was that. It, from the beginning, the uh, intention was to imbue politics with kind of this Islamist character. I think one thing that's, that I tried to show, especially in the Kuwaiti case, was how social capital converts into political capital. And is that instrumentalization, or is that just a, a kind of a natural process? I, I think it's unclear, uh, and I'm un, unsure about that. Um, does that answer your question, or no? Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. After he's bought the book, and, and you can <laughs> after. Um, yeah, um, no, the, the book, it doesn't really cover Egypt uh, because it's about the Gulf. Um, and, I mean, it talks, about, it talks about Egypt peripherally, of course, because the Brotherhood came out of Egypt. Um, and a lot of the first kind of members of the Brotherhood who came to the Gulf came from Egypt. So, of course, there was an influence. There was an exchange of ideas kind of across those different countries. So it's definitely relevant, and it's definitely involved. It's definitely a part <coughs> of the story. Um, it's just not a central part of that story. Um, as far as the conflict between Brotherhood and Shia groups, um, I guess this is only really relevant, uh, as far as I know, in the Kuwaiti case, really. Um, and there hasn't been kind of the, the outright um, kind of, I guess, Brotherhood Shia tensions that you might ex expect. Uh, the, the main line of tension between the Brotherhood and in Kuwait and Shia Islamist groups in Kuwait, at least at the moment, seems to be that Shia Islamist groups tend to side tend to be more loyalist than our brotherhood groups who today tend to be, or the brotherhood group, which tends to align with uh, the opposition bloc more broadly. But in terms of kind of ideological issues with Shia, um, it's, it hasn't been a huge part of the agenda, I guess, maybe in, in these states in, in general. Um, the question about uh, political opportunity structures, um, I think that the political opportunity structures are different in, in Qatar and the UAE. Um, just because of the federal system in the UAE. I mean, in Qatar is a very small place. It's not divided into emirates. Uh, in the UAE, you have these seven very unequal and very different emirates in terms of social character, economic capital, all <coughs> kinds of things. And so I think that that, that, makes, that makes the dynamic, the political dynamic, fundamentally different. So you have people joining Islam in particular in Ras al-Khaimah, whereas in, in Qatar, you don't have um, kind of a, a congruent Ras al-Khaimah, you know. So there, I guess it does kind of undermine the argument that this isn't about rentierism because to a certain extent um, this is about, about handouts from the state not being um, handed out equally. But I guess that would be my, my rebuttal to that. Um, as far as the Brotherhood in diaspora, I, I think it's, it's quite difficult, um, especially now. I think also a lot of people who are members of the Brotherhood who are abroad have families back in these countries, so they wouldn't want to do anything that would jeopardize their family safeties, for, for instance. Um, but I, I mean, informally, there is kind of this this MB in the diaspora and people meeting in London and in Istanbul and having these kind of social connections, certainly. Um, but as far as kind of anything more than that, I, I haven't heard of it. Um, and I, I don't know. I think the feeling is that now is not the time for it because the Brotherhood has been so um, widely and internationally vilified at, at, the, at present. And I don't know if you want to respond about the Brotherhood being pragmatic. Um, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think, I think the, 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 I mean, the, the revolutions basically made everyone act in ways that 
were not particularly rational. I think the Brotherhood didn't act in ways that were particularly rational. Is that what you mean? Since 2013, it's difficult to say because they're divided. I mean, is I mean, we should have even spoken about. I mean, there's several Brotherhoods today, by the way. I mean, that doesn't come up into the book because the Gulf Brotherhood is not divided, but the Central House in Cairo is deeply divided. So there's several. At one point, there were two Brotherhood websites. So you know, there's a, it's quite difficult today to uh, understand what's happening within. Um, um, and I guess even within that divide, you find a more pragmatic faction and one that is uh, acting in. Can I, can I comment on that as well? Because I, I, it, I remember a conversation um, with, and I, I, I agree with Hisham actually on this. I remember a conversation I had in 2014 with the then Jordanian Minister of the Interior about this. And of course, in Jordan, I mean, and Jordan actually has very interesting similarities with, with, with uh, what happened in the Gulf. Because in Jordan's monarchy and also the, the Brotherhood since the late 50s had, had known where the red lines were, known, known where the tram lines were. And they, and, they, and, they, and they kept checking these lines and there was coordination with, 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 with GID, with the, with the Internal Intelligence Service, uh, with, the, with the Bersha. And I remember the, Minister, the Interior Minister, and I got this from the Bersha as well, said the Brotherhood stopped returning my calls in, 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 uh, in, in, in early 2011. Um, <coughs> And he said, we concluded that, that they thought the system had cracked wide open and this was their opportunity and they were going to seize it. So although they had operated within a system which, they, which was more or less stable politically and everybody knew where, where, the, where their roles were, in the same ways, in some ways, they'd done it in Egypt in, 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 under, under Mubarak um, uh, and in Kuwait. I think what you saw then was, 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 the, was the unpragmatic, the socially revolutionary um, uh, underside of the Brotherhood coming out. They, did, they thought it's an opportunity to seize power. And, and a lot of this is about power, about who has power. And, and you can't be content forever and ever just having you know, 50% of normative power within a society. Because having power, as we say elsewhere in the Middle East, is about distributing resources. And, we, and in, in, in Kuwait, from the 1950s onwards, a lot of these political struggles were about who controlled the distribution of resources. And you still see this to this day. And what they also said was, was, and I think we saw something similar happening in Kuwait at about the same time, when Hadas started actually agitating for things that they hadn't agitated for before, for constitutional change, and actually for, for all sorts of different things. Uh, that's changed, that's, 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 that's because states have reasserted, traditional states in Jordan and in Kuwait have reasserted their authority. But I think that spooked a lot of people uh, around the region, as well, of course, as the experience of Egypt. Let me just add one thing. I, I think it all depends on what we define by pragmatism. And what does it mean to be pragmatic in times of revolution? I guess this is, this is a much broader question. Was probably. it Nasser? <laughs> Bronwyn, can you put your hand up and can you give the microphone to her? And then we'll questions over that. I've neglected this slide, so put your hands up. Keep your hands up, otherwise I'll forget. One, two, three, and you'll be first if we work back. I'm Bronwyn Manby. I'm a research fellow at the Middle East Center. I have a question which may be naive because I know very little about the Gulf states. But when you say that the Muslim Brotherhood is not organized on behalf of poor people, and it's just, well, it's obvious because there's lots of money, but there are lots of poor people in the Gulf states, they're just not citizens. So why are they not organizing in with the non-citizens, both those who are citizens of other country and the Badun, if the ideology is that all Muslims are equal, why have they not taken up that opportunity? Thank you. And uh, the microphone, sorry to make you run, uh, down here, second row back, one person. Hi. 
Uh, first, thank you all for this great discussion. Uh, my question is about uh, the Gulf War. So if it was the pivotal moment where it kind of uh, created this division and, and didn't allow for a centralized organization, why were there different uh, differing opinions about the Gulf War? Was it purely based on uh, the Brotherhood's country and where were they were based, or were there other reasons for, for the uh, differing views? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Gentleman here, and then back, and then back. Yes, uh, this is Saeed from Oman. In uh, 1994, there was a big uh, crackdown of the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Oman. Now, my question is, how were they able to penetrate Oman with, the, with the, you know, uh, uh, although the majority is Ibadis, so how were they able to penetrate the Ibadi community as well? Hi there, I'm Nouri. Um, my qualification is I'm Courtney's friend. Um, thank you, Courtney. Um, my question just comes back to this pragmatism versus other debate we're having. On the one hand, Sir John suggests that the Brotherhood are fundamentally opposed to the legitimacy of the current um, uh, states or, 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 or systems in the Gulf, in which case you might think that the repression or crackdown is justified. Um, Stefan suggests that the, they are pragmatists, relatively conservative. Courtney, where do you fall on this? How would you characterize their activities in the last 10 years? Um, and then quickly, uh, um, Stefan, when you, when you made a comment about the, cha the fundamental change in the nature of the state um, under MBZ um, in, in the UAE in the last 10 years, uh, Sir John was nodding away a lot. I wonder if either of you just had an expansion on, can on I that. Just, can I just say, I, I think there's a contest for legitimacy. I think it's not quite the same thing as saying... If, if you hold that thought, we'll get back to you because we've got one more question this round. Hi there. Thank you very much for the presentation, Courtney. Um, I just had a quick question more about political and social life in the Gulf, and I'm thinking specifically in the countries where the Muslim Brotherhood is less active now, and your theory about uh, you know, social and political activity in super rentier states. Has this been replaced by something else? Or would you say that across the board in places like the UAE and, uh, and Qatar, life is just becoming less politically active? All right, thank you. So there's, there's five questions. The first one from Bronwyn, and then we'll take you through. But the um, do, does or why doesn't uh, the Muslim Brotherhood organize in the Gulf in non-citizen communities, the Ikhwan, but the wider expatriate labor community? Um, yeah, great question. I mean, I, I didn't touch on this just because they're not part of the rentier bargain, right? So I, I assume that they're excluded from that, which would, I mean, <laughs> make them kind of, I, I guess, uh, yeah. Anyway, so they're not part of the rentier bargain and they're not allowed into kind of institutionalized political life. That said, it would be a fascinating topic to look more into that. And I know Atiya Ahmed wrote a book about the conversions, uh, is convergence to Islam of of domestic servants in Kuwait. And this is kind of the first work I've seen on that topic specifically and how there are centers um, that are that are tailored to kind of those expat populations and kind of delivering classes in a variety of languages about Islam. And this was, I think it was specifically Sufi, um, Sufi-ish Islam. So there, I there is something there. Uh, I didn't cover it, but it would be a fascinating topic. Um, yeah, and then- The next question yeah. is the differing opinions after the 1990 Gulf War, mm. um, and what accounts for those differences? 
Uh, I mean, I guess in, in short, the, the International Brotherhood was never that strong, really, because you do have these increasingly localized and nationalized agendas <coughs> coming together under this very loose umbrella organization. And I think ultimately it was kind of, do you prioritize the, the do you prioritize hating what Saddam Hussein did or hating American involvement in the Gulf? And that is kind of, I guess, crudely speaking, where the, where the line was drawn. Um, but I guess it, it really, to me, indicates the extent to which, it, which it, even at its height, it was a pretty weak organization. Um, and uh, as far as Oman, um, it's a fascinating case and a, a really good question. And I've been dying to find more materials on the Omani Brotherhood. As far as I know, um, the Brotherhood there, I mean, that crackdown, the members of the Brotherhood who were involved <coughs> were actually in pretty high positions. There was someone who's a former ambassador to the US, some people in the military. So it's interesting that they were able to kind of they were people, people in positions of power. Um, and I don't really know much about how they managed to, to penetrate the Omani environment, to be honest. And I don't know if, if either of you could, could comment on that further. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a fascinating case because it is, of course, an Abadi state. Um, yeah, and then as far as uh, pragmatists, I, I'm just speaking from the, for the Brotherhood in the Gulf. Uh, I, think, I think they have been pragmatic, um, especially, I mean, you look at the, the Kuwaiti Islamists, the Kuwaiti Brotherhood in particular, they've tailored their political agenda in particularly to kind of the, the national discourse and to, to what's happening politically there. Um, they're not talking about um, things like in implementing a dress code. Instead, they're talking about giving the Bajun citizenship rights. So I think in, that's probably the best example of pragmatism. And I, th I think in, in the other Gulf states, in Qatar, you could argue that dissolution is also a, a sign of pragmatism um, in, in that case. Um, as far as, yeah, what kind of replaces brotherhood presence? Uh, I think it's hard to say. I know, I, I mean, in, in the UAE, there has been kind of an effort uh, to a certain extent by the state to, uh, to fund Sufi endeavors. And so that's one kind of outlet of, I guess, politically appropriate Islam that's, that's uh, kind of endorsed by the state. Uh, in, in Qatar, I mean, the Brotherhood still exists, I guess, at a, in a very informal level, but it was never very powerful to begin with. Um, but it, I guess it will be interesting to see kind of what, what crops up, and I don't know if, if you two have comments. Now we broaden it out so that the mm -hmm. final question was addressed, picked up on what Stefan mm -hmm. said, but I think all three of you should address it because it's quite fascinating. But Stefan said that basically the, the fundamental nature of Saudi Arabia and the UAE has been transformed, and the rentier states that we used to know and love so well are now something different. I guess the question is what they are, how sustainable are they, and what's driven that change? If Courtney wants to tackle it first, we'll work our way down the table. No, thanks. Okay, <laughs> so Stefan can pick up on his own. Uh, what, I was, what I was trying to say, um, to, to, put it, to put it in a different way, I think uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, I speak about Saudi Arabia more because this is what I know better, um, is becoming a, a, a normal Arab country, and the Arab norm has become radicalized. So now being a normal Arab country means being like Egypt or <laughs> because this is the new norm. This is the new normal in the Arab world. And I'm saying that this is a radical change from what used to exist. That what you're seeing in Saudi Arabia is, a, for instance, a, um, I mean, the, 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 um, the end of those type of politics, which I described, I think, when I spoke about winter politics, which Courtney describes very well in the book. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, it's not about negotiating anymore. It's not about co-opting. It's about crushing. It's about dealing with citizens as they've been dealt with in Egypt. You don't have the type of personalized 
uh, linkages that used to be there. You know, I mean, in Saudi Arabia, to give you an example, the, the, the 10, 15 years ago, uh, someone would say something that they shouldn't say. And the next day, they would get summoned at uh, the local branch of uh, the Mabahas, the, uh, the state security, and they will tell you, yeah, Ibni, you know, oh, my son, why did you do that? You know, what you do is wrong. You know, just, okay, sign that paper and say you'll never do it again. You know, and then they give you a slap on the face and you go. I mean, of course, if you keep on doing it, maybe next time, you know, it will be a bit harsher and harsher, right? But, but, but it was always this type of personalized treatment. I call it paternalistic authoritarianism. And I think this notion of paternalism is fundamental to understand the way the Gulf function. Sheikh Zayed, King Abdullah, they all function in this type of paternalistic way. What we're seeing is a new generation that it doesn't have the type of paternalism in its DNA, that s looks at other types of models across the region and wants to import those models. The state, in, and in a way, you, you could actually make the argument, by the way, if you want to, uh, 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 you know, more considerations aside, it's a form of modernization. You know, in a sense, you could argue that the old paternalistic authoritarianism of the Gulf was some type of uh, um, a leftover of an old way of doing politics that had no place in the modern world, right? What you're seeing is the state as a cold beast being imported to the Gulf. And Gulf citizens didn't, were not used to experiencing the state as this type of cold Leviathan over their heads. But this is increasingly what, when you speak to Saudis, this is what they're feeling. When you speak to Emiratis, this is what they're feeling. So this was my, this was my point. Is it sustainable? Uh, and Stefan, is it sustainable? <laughs> uh, the problem is the other, the, the, the previous way of doing politics was probably not going to be sustainable for very long. Because in the end, it was also rentier, right? And the, 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 the more the rent becomes scarce, the more the model is, is becoming um, uh, I mean, cannot function anymore the way it did. So in a way, the model had to reinvent itself, <coughs> for sure, right? Yes, I think there were other ways to reinvent it, but, but the old model is certainly not going to be sustainable for very long. JJ? <coughs> you know, I think demographics plays a, a, a massive role uh, in this. Uh, if you look at Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is now 30 million people. It, it had, uh, it's a little less than, they kicked out from the statute, but, but it's, it's got you know, basically 20 million Saudis. Saudi Arabia, when, you know, when, when, when Saudi Arabia was, was, was executed in 66, Saudi Arabia was what, 3 million, 4 million, maybe? Um, it was, and it, it, it's a different sort of thing. I've seen Mohammed bin Zayed in Jones the Grocer underneath uh, Mabada, um, holding his majlis there, and people will come up to him. Now, this is not the traditional way of doing a majlis. And of course, even with, with that and with a majlis, just, you cannot get to all the people anymore that you need. It's still easier in the Emirates to do it because there are fewer than, than, than a million Emiratis. Uh, and, and, the, and the nine million uh, expatriates there, and the fantastic question about why, why people don't organize. Uh, and one of the reasons why they, people don't organize among them is if, if they do, they get kicked out. Or, or, and a lot of them are treated okay. I mean, they, they send money back. I mean, it, 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 there is actually uh, an economy and it, a, a weird sort of uh, a remittance economy. Um, which, 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 which uh, for the moment, I think, is made about. In Saudi Arabia, I think it is different. And, Saudi, and if you look at social, there is social, there always has been public opinion in Saudi Arabia, and you could tell what the public opinion was because you could look on Twitter. And it is, it, is, it is the most wired. Now, you know, not so much. And I think that's, that is a problem because I think, you know, Twitter does, 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 does create new sorts of social groupings. And I, th I think the, the way in which Saudis, the education system and the scholarship program in Saudi Arabia have worked with people going overseas. It has produced new forms of, or incipient forms of social organization, is my guess. 
I mean, Pascal Menevet, your, 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 your compatriot, talks about some of this on, on the fringes of Saudi society in Joyriding and Riyadh, which is fascinating because it points to, to a sort of, it, it's the sort of spatial distribution of social organizations. And if you look at Saudi, I mean, Riyadh now, and every time I go back to Riyadh, it's grown. I mean, it's growing mainly to the north, 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 northwest, but it's just out into the desert. How can you, so in some ways, if you, if you look at the mass transit system in Riyadh, this is in some ways a metaphor for social connectivity, except social connectivity isn't just a train. It's, 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 it's something else. And it's just something else which isn't really there, I mean, I, which is a challenge, I should say, which is a challenge. Right, thank you. That's, we've had a, a fascinating feast of ideas uh, this evening. Um, I'm going to draw the meeting to a close. One, because all of you can carry on your conversation with Courtney afterwards. All you have to do is buy her very reasonably priced book. And then once you've done that, you can move on to the drinks reception and have a conversation with Stefan and JJ. So I'd, I'll leave you with two thoughts. One, if you want to go and see Mohammed bin Zayed, go to Jung's The Grocer. So secondly, that, that the argument here is that the, the Gulf states have been transformed through a process of coercive authoritarian modernity. And I think that's a really interesting thing to wrestle with. But most centrally, we need to thank Courtney and her two discussants for a fascinating hour and a half. And as the other two discussants, if you haven't got it already, I will add to this, highly commended the book and urge you to buy it. I'd buy it quickly because we don't have 180 copies, so get there before they all go and then join us for a drink afterwards. Thank you very much.